Hi, friend. Today, I'm lifting back up a conversation I had not too long ago with the brilliant and thought-provoking Edgar Villanueva. Edgar literally wrote the book on decolonizing philanthropy, and he's on a mission to advance a more just and equitable world. In our conversation, we cover a lot of ground, but we really focus in on a couple key areas. First, a lot of companies want a quick diversity, equity, and inclusion checklist to run through. But as Edgar details, the real work takes years and requires intentional changes and reallocating of resources. In our conversation, Edgar gets specific about some ways that you can think about reallocating resources in your own work and life in service of justice. He also says we need to create spaces where different cultures can thrive. As Edgar says in this conversation, and it's worth hearing these words for yourself, in all work, challenge yourself and your company to speak truth to power with love. Gosh, don't you just love that? Speak truth to power with love. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I'm glad to serve it back up to you today. Enjoy the show, and I'll see you on the other side. And if you like what you hear, I do hope you'll give the show a rating or a review. Now, on to my conversation with Edgar. Welcome to Mission Forward, a podcast exploring how big ideas and social change take hold. My name is Carrie Fox, and I'm your host. Listen in as we talk with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers in social change, and we explore how foundations, philanthropists, and corporate and community leaders are challenging business as usual in order to move missions forward in meaningful and memorable ways. Today, we are talking with Edgar Villanueva, author, activist, senior VP of the Schott Foundation, and a member of the Lumbee Tribe. Here at the Mission Forward podcast, we look at how transformative social change takes hold. So I have for many years, but really in this podcast, now only been um, in the last couple months, listening and learning from folks like you who have found ways to break through and disrupt business as usual in ways that lead to more equitable and just outcomes. And I have been watching your work for the last couple of years. And so I am especially grateful to have you talking with me today about decolonizing wealth and how you have disrupted a sector pretty significantly in the last couple of years. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited about the conversation today. Edgar, I'm going to start at the top. Before I get into the book and the movement, I love that you won the 2018 Most Radical Philanthropy Critic. So congratulations on that. But I want you to take me back uh, a few more steps to your roots in southeastern North Carolina and tell me about the path that has led you to lead this decolonizing wealth movement. Absolutely. So, yes, I am originally from North Carolina. That's where my people are. And uh, as you said, a member of the Lumbee tribe, we are um, the largest tribe on the East Coast. Uh, a lot of folks are surprised to learn that there are Native Americans in the U.S. South, um, but we, we are there. And um, that's the community that I come from. So I think, um, obviously, my cultural identity and uh, being Indigenous has really shaped who I am uh, as a person. Being from the South also, and from the family that I'm from, that was um, very engaged in, uh, in uh, the church, the Christian church. There's a lot of um, impressions that, I, that I've taken away from that as well in, in my identity. And Frankly, um, growing up, I, I didn't know the difference between like values or beliefs that I was holding as a young person 
Um, I, I didn't know if it was because I was native or from the South. I was just, this is just who I was, right? And the family that I was in. But later in life, when I got to college, um, that's where I really got more connected to the Native community because my family had moved away uh, from Robinson County uh, when I was very young. And so I was the only Native American in my K-12 experience. And so when I got to the University of North Carolina and I, I was just so hungry to connect with people, um, other Native students and um, I began to understand that um, there that there were certain things about my worldview and my perspective that were unique to being Native American, honestly. And from being from the Lumbee tribe, I mean, all tribes are not the same, obviously, right? We have 574 tribes and federally recognized tribes in the United States. So, um, but um, I began to really just uh, want to want to connect more deeply with that identity because. When you are Native American in this country, you are just, uh, you know, automatically born into an identity crisis situation. <laughs> and um, I, I wanted to more um, understand the origins of my people and to understand what made us special. And frankly, I had so assimilated to, to white culture, like dominant white culture is all around us. It's an easy thing to do. And I felt quite lost um, in some ways. So that's been my my work and my path since since college is to do the work of decolonization, which simply means for me unlearning a lot of things and relearning the traditional values of of my people. You know, and, and the work that I'm doing to decolonize wealth, I stumbled into the philanthropic sector like any person that you meet that works at a foundation pretty much um, 15 years ago or almost 16 now when I started. There wasn't a very clear pathway into uh, a career in philanthropy, but I had uh, studied public health and had been working in the nonprofit sector on issues of health equity. And I got recruited to a foundation and I uh, thought, you know, what a fantastic opportunity to be a part of this, this sector and this institution that is moving millions of dollars um, to nonprofit organizations. And the, the, the warmness and the ro like romanticized ideas that may come to mind when I say that I had access to millions of dollars and I was moving millions of dollars. Some of that is, some of that is true. Um, but what I found was just a clash of with my identity and my how I as I was becoming politicized around issues of race and power um, as a young person. There was actually a, a major clash with the, the culture and the dominant norms within the, the place and institution of philanthropy that um, caused a lot of problems for me, just a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, um, and some disillusionment um, around the realities of, of, of the world, right? And the philanthropy is inherently connected to capitalism and all of these things that I had to grapple with. So. These, you know, the work that I do now, the book that I wrote in, in Decolonizing Wealth Project is actually creating space for those, uh, those contradictions and to have conversations and to, to name the truth of what is what and to think of ways to uh, move forward and differently with a, a, a vision for uh, a world in which we can all thrive in our cultures. How long were you in the philanthropy sector when you realized something's not right here? <laughs> You know, probably a couple of years because honestly, the first the first two years were, were were really blissful. I had a really nice paycheck, 
Um, as someone coming out of graduate school with debt, I, <laughs> I enjoyed, uh, you know, the, the proximity to power as well. Um, I, I remember my first Christmas when I worked at the foundation, I actually received a Christmas card in the mail from the governor of North Carolina, like a real Christmas card. It was like actually signed. <laughs> I was like, wow, like, wow, who am I? And what is this, this place that I'm working in that I, I'm now like, uh, you know, at the, the, in the VIP section. So part of that, you know, actually felt good to to have power and to uh, go into communities and have the key to the treasure box. You know, this is something I wasn't used to having. And um, but I remember, um, you know, really clearly some some things that began to happen that made me realize that everything was not as it seemed. Um, I remember beginning to ask very really innocent questions where I was really trying to understand and make sense of things. And uh, the fact that I was even asking questions was unwelcome. It was as if I were questioning authority and, you know, was told to kind of know my place and that my job was to not ask questions, but to take my money and to distribute that money uh, in a way that aligned with the the status quo that was in place. And it was above my pay grade to question any of that. And so that's where I began to um, really understand that there was something larger going on behind the scenes in, with this, in this world of wealth and money and power that, uh, of course, uh, created this curiosity in me. Because if you're uh, saying no and things are hush hush and there are conversations I can't be a part of. Then of course I wanted to to know more, and but you know one quick story I'll share is that I'll never forget um, a board meeting where I was presenting a docket of grants and you know we had made some intentions at the foundation to fund different groups to expand our networks to move more money into communities of color. Um, at that time, I, like most of our grantees were large institutional kind of organizations like hot healthcare systems and universities. And I remember presenting a particular grant that I felt very passionate about funding. I mean, this was good work. It was in a community that we really needed to fund and had not funded. And I was just getting a no all the way around. And I wasn't, you know, I, I respected the position of the board and the president there. So I wasn't being like absolutely like, anarchy or anything, but I was really asking in a loving way for more explanation about the no, so that I would have a clear discernment moving forward around what's in and what's out, right? And in the middle of, of that question, um, my my president uh, said in front of the entire board and staff that, uh, Edgar, you're getting too big for your britches. And it was like this like shutdown. Like I, I just felt like my, my heart just sank into my stomach because I realized right then and there kind of like the, the situation of, of what thing, you know, how things were that I was not an organization that was going to celebrate me being a leader or celebrate questioning or trying to be innovative to do something different. And then, you know, so that, that was really the, the first marker that uh, being a uh, status quo, being uh, coloring within the lines is the thing that's rewarded and celebrated and, and not anything else within the sector. You know what I find so fascinating, though, about what you did is there are a lot of people who would have been in that room and heard that and walked away and said, you know what, this this isn't for me. I'm going to go find something else. Instead, you did something very different. 
right? So you dug even further and you said, I'm going to do something, even if I'm a little bit scared about it, right? I've heard you talk a little bit about, there were high stakes, right? With you writing a book and basically even from inside the philanthropic sector, calling out the philanthropic sector for some things that it was doing wrong. And so I just want to acknowledge that, that that is not something that a lot of people think they have the courage to do, right? But you you did, and I appreciate that. What was interesting about it is you you did more than strike a chord, right? You struck a nerve, <laughs> but in a, in a positive way, right? That, that at least from the outside in, and I'd love to get your take on this, but it feels like it has really moved philanthropies to challenge the way they do business. And I would love to hear from you what you think it was, whether it was something about the message or the messenger, right? How you delivered it. But there was something that made people hear what you were saying that I think a lot of people don't have that, that skill to have that, that kind of message stick. Yeah. I, I had chills even as you're asking the question, because I think two years later, actually this month, two years ago is when the book first came out. I remember just the knots in my my stomach around what the reaction would be, which will be the case for anyone putting out a book. You're like, you kind of hold your breath and you hope that people, you know, will, will appreciate your work. Um, but I, I, I did feel like the stakes were high and I was sharing stories and putting stuff in the book that was sort of taboo for within philanthropy to, to talk about, right? Like naming names and like, and, and saying certain things, talking about internalized oppression and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I think for me, um, what I imagine to be sort of some of the reason that this, this framework and this conversation has really influenced philanthropy. One, just me as a person, I will say it, and it's not about me. There, there is a, a movement of people within philanthropy that have been pushing, pushing, pushing for a long, long time. And and I do remember back early on um, after that situation where I was told I was too big for my britches, I went down to a neighboring foundation to speak with an elder there and kind of shared that story. And uh, Gladys Washington, a, a name that a lot of people will know, um, who has been, had been, she just retired recently, but had been a philanthropy a long time, pushing, pushing, pushing. She said to me, um, you know, baby, these institutions, these foundations are doing exactly what they were set up to do and you ain't going to change it. <laughs> and so I, I, um, I, I do remember, you know, I always carried those words with me in that challenge, but I think that what, what was really in place is that because of all the seeds that have been planted, and I have been someone who had been in philanthropy for a number of years. I think I was seen as a, you know, a rising leader or, you know, rising star potentially in philanthropy, someone that was speaking on panels and those kinds of things early in, in my career. Um, I had some level of respect and credibility in the field that pre- people could, could appreciate. I wasn't coming out of left field as like a disgruntled employee kind of person, right? Also, I think that there's a fatigue that people have been experiencing in philanthropy around all of the, the decades of talking and researching and, and analyzing data around diversity and culture within our sector, but not seeing a change and needing and wanting something more. There's been a conversation um, like decolonizing wealth happening at the water coolers uh, for a long time and in the back hallways of conferences, but never on the main stage. So when I came out into the light with this message, it, I, it just resonated with so many people 
who have been having these conversations, but not but afraid to have them publicly um, or have been grappling with the issues and didn't have a, the language or the context for for the issues. And it was sort of like, you know, a now or never moment. Like if we're really going to deliver on our mission, if we're really about equity, if we're about that life, then we've got to do something radically different. It cannot be more of the same. And I just felt like it was like this collective sigh of relief. Like finally someone said what we're, what we've all been thinking, you know, and the, the, the other thing that I'll just say about it is I think the approach of my work is, is one that speaks the truth and it speaks the truth of power, but also does that in love and does that in patience and understanding. Um, and maybe that's part of my Southern upbringing, but um, it, it's the, 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 the claims that I make in the book, the, the facts that I state about philanthropy and how we've not been effective, how we've not been just are facts. Like, and you can't argue the facts and you can't argue with someone's personal experience working in this field. And so I think that storytelling and that vulnerability that I expressed in this work has been something that folks have welcomed in and want to hear more of, want to, want to respond to in some way. Um, because ultimately, I do believe that the majority, the vast majority of people who work in philanthropy, who work in the social finance sector, are well-meaning people and intend to do good. Often, they are just blinded by privilege and systemic barriers that get in the way of being crystal clear about a better way to, to do the work. That's interesting. I mean, it maybe gets back to what you were saying earlier, too, that this this kind of call to arms that you brought to the sector, it wasn't an outside critique of the sector saying, that looks broken over there, you should do something about it. It's, I'm in this too, and, and we together should do something about it. So I want to hear what you thought the potential outcome of the book would be or the response to the book would be. And now two years after it's been released, what you point to as some of the interesting measures of success of how the message has been received. Yeah. So, you know, I thought at best (laughs) the book came out that um, I would, uh, you know, sell a couple copies and uh, maybe do like a small book tour and then maybe like five bookstores around the country or something like that. So I... Uh, I also did fear um, some type of retaliation. Honestly, I lawyered up. I was ready and expecting the potential worse. Um, although, obviously, there, there's nothing in the book that I feel is tearing down, um, you know, other folks or institutions in that way. But we are such a powerful sector that even, um, you know, loving critique um, actually kind of, you know, scared me. I, you know, I, I look really brave and bold now, but at the time I wasn't sure. And I, there were certain parts of the book that I grappled with actually, you know, whether, whether or not I should take them out, like, like weeks before it went to publication. So, you know, I, I didn't expect much and I thought, oh, I'm going to do this and then I'll get back to my job and life will move on. Um, but what has happened is that honestly, the book changed my life. And since the book came out, I have my own analysis around decolonization and healing and all of this has um, evolved even so much more because I'm always talking about it and always thinking about it. And, um, you know, I'm on a journey. Like, I'm not a person to be set on a pedestal that has fully arrived and figured all of this out. But I, I am on a healing journey. And, um, you know, and I think this work is always evolving. The, the tour has never ended. Um, <laughs> I still feel like I'm on a 
book tour. Um, I, was, I was still doing many events. And even during this time of uh, pandemic where things are online, I'm still having uh, conversations and um, uh, around the book. And the book has won awards and has been a bestseller. And um, it's, it's incredible. Within philanthropy, I've been amazed at how large foundations, I could like name names of different institutions that people would recognize, but the book has been used uh, to uh, guide foundations through their strategic planning processes. I feel like every person in philanthropy has probably read it by now. It's like everyone I talk to has it, every board has read it. Also, beyond just like reading and grappling with the material, which I know folks are doing internally, um, there have been grant-making initiatives launched. Um, People have started funding Native communities that have not funded them before. Um, But what's even more exciting to me is that um, some of the more radical um, ideas that I put out, um, such as um, foundations should take 10% of their endowments to just hand them over to communities of color, there are foundations who are actually considering doing that. Um, there's a foundation in Canada that uh, the board has actually, actually committed to taking a percentage of their endowment and handing it over to First Nations people. Um, here in the U.S., I'm currently talking with a very large foundation who is in the process of um, thinking through. The board has approved this at, at some level, um, but it's seriously looking at how to take a portion, 10%, actually, just because I've made that number up uh, <laughs> um, uh, of their endowment um, and giving that back to individuals as a form of reparations. And so reparations and that, that terminology and that framework in, in philanthropy is a very real thing and a real conversation that people are having. And so I wish I had the capacity to do a full-scale evaluation because I truly, truly believe that philanthropic practice has shifted and that it's shifted permanently, that there's no going back. Uh, to way things were. Um, I think that talking about race and power is so much more uh, the norm in this moment. And obviously because of the movement for Black Lives and what we're experiencing now, that has just like accelerated things even more further. And I, um, I know that people have, uh, foundations have divested and increased spending rates. Um, a large foundation in Seattle decided to spend down after reading the book and just liquidate their assets completely and hand them over to communities. So I am uh, overwhelmed at the response. And and beyond those large responses, I have to say there's countless of just individual stories that I I could share of people who have reached out or emailed. And it's everything from impacts from this book, Save My Marriage. I met my fiance at your book event and we're getting married to this book, Save My Life, because the reality is that within institutions and philanthropy and other places for so many folks, there's a lot of trauma that um, uh, you know, people of color especially hold sometimes that can become so intense and severe um, that um, you physically can become sick. And I'll never forget a woman who told me that she was, uh, had become so physically sick and uh, was approaching death and after reading the book made a decision to get out of that situation. And so that, you know, so many impacts, and I know we're going to talk outside of philanthropy, there's been additional impacts um, across sector sectors that are super inspiring. It seems like you were just scratching the surface of a conversation that is starting and has been long overdue in corporate America, right? We, we know that corporations are 
are um, wrestling with their own storied past as we think about capitalism and all the flaws of it. And businesses are thinking about what they can do, what they must do to address systemic racism and their role in perpetuating it. And I'm curious if the book has started to make its way to whether it's corporate foundations or corporate boardrooms, right? It certainly seems like a lot of what you say could be really applicable to a lot of corporations right now. Early last year when, you know, the book was really taking off, um, I did begin to get calls from uh, financial institutions, corporations that, uh, I was kind of surprised to hear from, right? And some of these are are, are pu- very public uh, corporations that are demonized um, in, in the media and um, are very problematic in a lot of ways. I, re- I had an event actually in North Carolina um, at the Bank of America headquarters and um, who hosted, um, they hosted the event at their building, but it was put together by community folks. And I remember going to this event and a friend of mine back in North Carolina saying that they, they would not come, they would not set foot in this building who has done so many, you know, has wronged the community in so many ways and was kind of upset with me for actually going and participating, which I, I can totally understand. And I had to make a decision in that moment around what am I trying to accomplish with this work? If I'm really trying to disrupt and, and create or shift or influence a conversation in the hallways of power, I have to be willing to go into the belly of the beast, right? And of course, um, I have to be, discern the intentions that folks may have. But if there's an opportunity to sit down at the table and, and have a real conversation about truth and reconciliation and what folks and organizations need to do to, to repair relationships, I, I can't like not do that. I'm afraid to ask this. How many times does it feel like it's a real conversation versus someone who's not really ready to have a real conversation? You know, I would say more times than not, it feels really authentic because what I quickly do in these situations is get right to the humanity, <laughs> right? I get beyond beyond where we're sitting, who's in the room, what title you hold, where you work. It's like, I really don't care about that. What I care about is the human being that I'm engaging with right now and I'm getting quickly to a point of helping people understand that um, our, our, our humanity and our, our connectedness ar- around that. Because if we can't understand that at a basic level, then I just feel like there's no hope in influencing. Um, you know, the, the system is people and people are the system. And I think sometimes we get um, just, just kind of confused by that. So I, I felt really authentic. I, I feel like uh, in so many places that I've been, I mean, people are like, there, there are tears and we create healing spaces wherever we are. And I, one thing that I've really learned, I've had my biases. I've been a nonprofit guy my entire career. So I've had my biases around about corporate America and the for-profit sector. But I have to say that what I've learned in the past two years is that there are good people who are on the right side of history working within all of these systems and places, right? And how can I be self-righteous as someone who has worked inside philanthropy, which is the money comes from corporate America. So it's like we're, we're really, um, you know, in a sense, as some people might say laundering money for, for corporate America. And so I know that there's a lot of change that needs and must happen within the corporate sector. And they're really honest hearted people who are inside those systems and those organizations trying to change things. I'll share another quick story. When I uh, I went to Amazon headquarters last year, 
and they were having an internal conference around race. And this was right after the whole debacle with HQ2 and Queens, New York, and all of that. And um, again, I grappled with like, should I go? Like, what is this? What's going on here? And um, on the call with the people who are planning that conference, I asked, is any issue off the table? Do I have to like tiptoe around? And they're like, absolutely not. And I have to say, Amazon is a, a company who has so many problems, right? And Jeff Bezos as a person, again, is so many problematic things we could talk about. But what I will say is in that moment, you know, there were uh, four or 6,000 people at a conference that was completely um, optional to attend. And we were talking about race. And I went into the Billy Fat Beast. And it was actually one of the most powerful conferences on race I'd ever seen. Like, I was moved to tears multiple times. And I left there feeling a little bit confused myself because I'm like, wow, that was actually probably better than any conference on race in the nonprofit sector that I've been to. And why and how is Amazon, the group that's producing this? But what I really respect about uh, what happened that day is that I didn't have to get up and point a finger at Amazon and say, you've done all this, you screwed the community over in this way, in this way, in this way. They started that meeting with a slide and a conversation about all the things that have been going wrong and how uh, community have, have been harmed by the corporation and acknowledged that and took ownership over it and said, we must do better. And that's why we're here today. How many times have we seen a foundation do that to say, let me come out and tell you all, all the things we've done wrong? They talked about all the things that are in the news, all the all the criticisms of Amazon that we could we could get into. They named it themselves and took ownership of it. Right. And and so that actually created a vulnerability and a conversation to talk about well, what are the things that we must do different? The other thing that I appreciate about some of the corporations that I've worked with is the level of accountability that I see in some tech companies at Amazon. Amazon actually said, okay, so last year when we had this meeting, this was the second annual meeting, we saw that we fell short around DEI in, in these areas, and this is what we're going to change about it. One of them was a lack of diversity in, in partnerships with Amazon Studios. And uh, they said we were here, and our goal is to be there. And then the next year, they reported out among in this conference, this is where we are and the progress that we've made. And, you know, I, I took from that an appreciation because I have to say in philanthropy, I've gone to conferences for 15 years talking about this stuff. And I feel like we're still at square one. And we're not looking at data and we're not tracking progress. And there's absolutely no accountability um, to achieving a certain level of progress. So there are, um, there are things that we can definitely take away from, you know, our, our partners who are working in the private sector. Yeah, and, and that's true. We do some work in higher ed and, and feel that way often, too, that it just seems to take so much longer than it should to, to really move something forward, right? But we are certainly in a moment now. We're a B corporation, and we are proud to be among a set of organizations who are really challenging a business model and have been for, for many years. But you're right. I think there is a level of transparency um, that business leaders are willing to take right now and ownership of past uh, work that has been misplaced or um, unintentionally or intentionally so, right? Mistakes that have been made over time that they are owning, including my company, owning to think about what the future could look like differently. So um, I do think there's a big opportunity there. I do want to ask you though, um, it does seem like people throw DEI or 
Jedi, right? Whatever their phrase is, they throw it around like it's a trendy term. And I'm curious what, um, you know, what you're seeing as you're thinking about this company that or this time, that certainly there's a lot of movement and action. And that's a good thing, right? To your point, we're not going to turn anyone away if they are showing up ready to do work. But um, making sure that people really are ready and willing to dig in and do the work and see what has been in front of them the entire time that many times people haven't been willing to see. I think in many ways we've done a disservice by lumping the D, E, and I together because they absolutely mean very different things. And, um, and, and you know, it, it's, it's very easy to um, put out statements around Black Lives Matter and to, to think about diversity which is which is very very important um but it's diversity should be should be should should be the floor um and and not the aspiration in my point of view i think what's really important with dei is for folks who understand the difference and you know for for me the ultimate goal is equity and equity is about ownership it's about power it's, it's getting beyond a change in representation or even like thinking about cultures that are inclusive, right? But also like how are we shifting power in a way that is actually privileging people who have been marginalized. And that is the true uh, tough work for organizations to take on um, and for even um, in our individual lives to think about how we can be more equitable if you have been in power and you've, if you've had privilege and, and resources, when you really get to the point where you're operationalizing equity in your life or in your company, it may actually feel like oppression for you because you're, you're literally giving, giving up power and taking a step back. And so that is where uh, I think a lot of folks are, are challenged um, is to really get to that deeper surface level because it really requires a complete shift. And, and what we want um, often is a very quick uh, checklist uh, to say, we did it, like, give me, you know, Edgar, come and meet with us. Give me the 10 things we need to change today. There are lots of things we can change right now, but to get to equity in our organizations, um, it's, it's, it's work that could take years and years and years. And, um, and it's a commitment and it requires resources and it requires change management. That's what um, I'm, I'm hoping to see um, I think, folks, the other thing that I'll say is that because equity is such a buzzword right now, it's really important to, you know, when you're looking for support with equity to, there, there are plenty of organizations led by people of color that have been doing this work for a long time. And I encourage people to tap into those resources because equity has become a new like, line of business. Um, everyone's putting their shingle out all of a sudden and claiming to be experts about it. And so I, I really feel a little discouraged when I hear about corporations or, or large institutions um, hiring the, these firms who are not, this is not really what they do. Um, this is a chance to practice equity and actually invest in those smaller firms, those B Corps, those, uh, those independent consultants that have been doing this work and have got us this far. Um, so that's, I'm glad that it is a buzzword, but we need to go beyond the buzzword um, as my, my friend Voulay says that he kind of makes a joke that equity means saying the word equity over and over again without changing anything. We don't, we don't want that <laughs> definition of equity. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. We've got time for two more questions, one on action and one on rest. So on action, tell us about Liberated Capital. Yeah, Liberated Capital is a fund that I launched in late 2018, really responding to 
a need that I saw uh, as I traveled all over the place talking about decolonizing wealth. I, uh, I became a person that a lot of philanthropists wanted uh, support from to in terms of donor advising, like Edgar, which organization should we fund? Who should we trust? Where we put our money? And so um, I um, directed folks to like a lot of places to, to put money. And I found that it, it did not get there um, after the conference or the meeting or whatever. And so I wanted to think of a way to, to connect people into an opportunity right in real time. And then the more I thought about it was, um, thought about it, I said, well, what, I, what we also need to do is get beyond uh, trans, you know, transactional relationships and get to a place of, of, of really um, having a community to dig into this work around healing. So Liberty Capital is a fund. Um, it's, it's a membership that anyone can, can go and sign up to be a member. There's no limits on any monthly amount that you can give. And it's inviting you to join a fund that is uh, about reparations and wealth redistribution. We accept money. We accept accept uh, stock. We're looking at accepting land because there are folks who want to return land back to indigenous ownership. And so we are we are taking wealth and we are getting it back out to organizations led by Black and Indigenous people. And we are creating a community to have transformative conversations about racial healing through giving. Um, and so for our members uh, uh, who might hear this, we are starting our programming this fall and we're super excited about having a radical place to just be vulnerable, to share um, our money stories and to, to think about um, how we use our resources as medicine to, in, in this world to heal, heal each other and to heal the planet. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's going to be in the show notes for this episode so people can find it. But I also wanted you to know that we are going to be making a donation in many thanks to you for being on for today and uh, on behalf of Mission Partners. So we're going to be tracking it um, as an invested member as well. Wonderful. And my last question is, you have been at this. It just seems like, you know, clearly for two years, but for way more than two years, you have been at this. So how, how do you care for yourself? Where, where do you find time for rest and for healing for yourself? You know, I still appreciate that. I, I, I need to do better. I talk about healing all the time. But, uh, you know, I have uh, connected with an, an indigenous healer who I meet with about once a month. And uh, it's, it's a person that I uh, am allowing to hold me accountable to uh, conversations around how I'm feeling, um, what I'm thinking, what questions I'm holding it's really like therapy. And so um, I am in uh, this, this healing process uh, with this person. That's one way I also love taking baths and, you know, with my, my lush bath bombs, that's like something that I do just to close off the world <laughs> and to, like, relax mm. in, a, in a hot tub. Um, and, uh, you know, I also, um, massage therapy is, is really big for me. I think human touch and um, doing things to, you know, uh, relax and I have quiet time. I live in New York City, so I also kind of joke about massage therapy as like I'm just paying someone to take a nap and to have a quiet <laughs> spot, you know, for an hour. Um, but I, these are my practices. Um, I need to do better. I will say that I also just try to laugh as much as possible and to be around friends that crack me up because it's such a heavy time, y'all. And there's so much death and there's so much... Um, fear and just terrible things going on in the world. And, you know, I don't want to make light of that, but at the same time, like for me, my, my joy is my strength. And so I try to find some uh, way to have a deep belly laugh, at least once a day. Mm. <laughs> 
Well, we are sitting here on a Friday afternoon doing this interview, so I hope you have some good rest in front of you and some good belly laughs in front of you for the weekend ahead. I have so much gratitude, Edgar, for taking some time with me to do this today. I have loved talking with you and learning from you and um, just really appreciate what, what you've been doing and how you've been doing it. So thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. I love how Edgar is challenging business as usual and putting truth to power with love, as he says. If you like what you heard in today's show, I hope you'll consider sharing this episode with a friend or colleague. And if it's inspired you to learn more, do more, or take action, I hope you'll let me know. Drop me a line over at carrie at mission.partners and tell me how this content is leaving an impact on you. Until next time, good luck moving your mission forward.